Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello everybody and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. Today gives me great pleasure to introduce Associate Professor James Martin. Thanks very much for joining me, James. Thank you, Sam. Mate, talking today about something that seems, seems to be new to me, but not, not new to what you're doing, but it certainly seems like it's on the up and becoming more and more uh, something that we need to keep an eye on moving forward and I'm keen to discuss that and everything that you're up to with, um, with re- relating to the dark net um, drug trade, but tell us a bit about your background. A bit about your background, firstly. Where are you from? How did you get into what you're doing at the moment? Uh, sure. So I'm I'm from Melbourne mostly. Um, I uh, I didn't jump straight into academia. I tried a few things out. Uh, had a very brief and ill-advised stint in the military, uh, and then uh, yeah, eventually I found uh, myself doing an international studies degree um, at RMIT, which was a fantastic course. And, and bit by bit, I just found myself getting drawn to the darker sides of everything. You know, I'd be looking at development issues, but then I'd be looking at the corruption side of that. And you know, everything I found was sort of uh, drawn to those, um, yeah, the things that would, would represent the darker sides of humanity in a way. And I think that that nat- naturally sort of pushed me towards this field of criminology 
which I've been in, um, uh, well, yeah, for about 10 years now. Uh, originally did my PhD studying vigilante gangs in South Africa uh, in, uh, in a little shanty town in Johannesburg. Wow. Uh, yeah, and that was, it was fascinating. It was really interesting research, but it, it was also, um, it was pretty scary, to be honest. So when I actually finished up my PhD, I was like, right, I, I'm not too keen to go and do field work in environments like that anymore. So I was looking for a different area of research. And luckily for me, uh, that was pretty much when the, the darknet drugs trade uh, got started. So it was just as one sort of, you know, criminal, new criminal phenomenon was getting uh, happening, there was, a, there was a space, you know, opening up, which I was lucky to, to, to jump in at the right time. Mate, so going back to your PhD, did you travel over to... Uh, Johannesburg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked in uh, in this shanty town called Zanspreit, which is uh, on the northern outskirts of, of Joburg. Uh, luckily, Monash. Uh, so I did my PhD at Monash. Monash has a campus next door to Zanspreit, and so there were there were some pre-existing links between the informal authorities, or the vigilantes in the settlement, and the university itself. Um, so I was able to to use the kind of links that were there with the university to negotiate access in and out, and and to get some sort of key initial introductions. What was it like, man? Was it as as um, I mean, they they say it's pretty third world there and, and pretty dangerous. Is it? Yeah, yeah. I think that it's uh, it was pretty much it was very similar to to what I thought it would would okay. be would be like, and I imagine what a lot of people would think it would be like. Um, I guess one of the surprising things. I mean, first up, you know, I mean, for for me, it was it was a bit too much. But you know, people live there, and and you know, a lot of people make make very uh, happy lives there as well. Although I, I think everyone, you know, would say that it's it, it's um, it's it's a very violent place, and that's one of the things that, that sticks out. Uh, one of the things that surprised me in Zanspreit, though, was you know I'd been to slums before um, uh, in the West, and I was expecting a similar kind of vibe, but it had a very different atmosphere and attitude. Um, that yeah, the people were visibly poor. Uh, you know, the, the the roads aren't paved. There's you know sewage running around. Um, and people would be living in houses made of, of, of refuse, but that refuse would be painted and there'd be, you know, little gardens out the front and, you know, it, there was this, um, uh, I guess, a, a respect for the environment in which people lived that they were materially deprived, but there was still a sort of pride of community and pride of spirit, which, mm. um, which I didn't anticipate and I found really, really nice to encounter. So, mate, then how did you, uh, how did you get started in the dark net stuff? It was just becoming, um, it was new to the... To the world when you first got into it what made you want to get into it uh well as i said uh, i was looking for a different area of research um and it was actually friends of mine uh, who had started buying drugs on the darknet and they they talked to me about it and around that same time uh it was just kind of hitting the press uh, so there was a, an article in um in gorka and then eileen ormsby who's a journalist who's written quite a lot about this um australian journalist she wrote a, a piece for fairfax media and so i read that and I was like, hang on, what's, what's been written about this in the scholarly world? And basically nothing. There, were, there was one letter to the editor written by uh, one of my um, uh, colleagues and, and co-authors, Monica Barrett, and another one by uh, another person I've worked with since, Nicholas Christen, which is a quantitative study, but nothing, nothing in a criminological sense. Um, so it's so rare in academia where you actually get Un, you know, uncharted territory and I could uh, yeah I'd never been as motivated to write anything in my life so I wrote an article and I, I wrote the first book on the topic but I could hear the other typewriters around the world of people who were doing this sort of stuff as well um, and so it was a good motivation to, to get in there and to, and to yeah and to, and to map out some of these unknown spaces. 
For, so for the listeners that, and I just, just learned this today, but for the listeners that may not know what the Darknet is, just give us a bit of a description. Uh, so the Darknet is a, uh, it's an anonymous part of the internet. Uh, so you, you access it with this uh, special type of internet browser called a Tor browser. Um, and in, in simple layman's terms, what it, what it does is it, um, is it masks your, your IP address. And that's the unique identifier that usually when you're online, that leaves a trace. Uh, and so with this IP address masked, uh, authorities, law enforcement, whomever, um, they don't know who you are or where you're, where you're located. So you're able to send, receive and host information. Uh, so that could be something like a website as well. Uh, and as long as it's on this encrypted part of the inter internet uh, and you're using the encryption properly, it's very, very difficult for authorities to, to figure out who you are. Impossible or difficult? Uh, yeah, nothing's, nothing's impossible. I think in the encryption world, that's kind of one of the maxims that, you know, it's a bit like forgeries. You know, if it can be made, it can be forged. Uh, and there are always little weaknesses and things that, you know, you, you don't know this, you know, there's a program running in the background that, you know, maybe the encryption is working properly, but you've introduced, unbeknownst to you, some, some weakness, you know, that can yeah. be exploited. Uh, and authorities are constantly, I mean, this is, the, this is the story of criminology. It's this game of cat and mouse and developing technologies. So, you know, offenders who use these darknet technologies, um, I would say that they can always be caught, but it's a question of are the police putting in the necessary resources? And it's one of the things that, um, that really complicates the work of police. I mean, the war on drugs has not been going well uh, since it was declared. And uh, it's hard enough for police to, to police the drugs trade you know, as it is, but you add all these layers of encryption and police don't have organisational legacies working with, you know, with, with cyber offences and we're trying to, to break these things, particularly Australian police. Um, so once this new digital front in the war on drugs is opened up, you know, the, the, the tide's just turning even further against so, I mean, I, I, I picture in my mind some people sitting in a room trying to find all these, who these people are on the dark net, but the reality is that's not currently the state. I mean, we don't have the resources there at the moment to be searching all these people and trying to find them and trace them to see what's going on and where they're from and what they're doing. Yeah, that, that, that's true. I don't think the resources do exist. Um, and I guess one of the, the other questions as well is, uh, even if we did, should we be doing that? And uh, a lot of the work that I've been interested in in doing is looking at the relative harmfulness of the, the darknet drugs trade versus, uh, versus the street trade. And a lot of the things that we've been seeing is it suggests that there are a lot of benefits as, you know, associated. If you start with the premise that people are going to buy illicit drugs one way or another um, and that you're not opening up huge new markets that wouldn't even previously exist, which is, again, what the research suggests, very few people use drugs for the first time uh, from accessing the darknet. Um, so if you're, if you're substituting a deal that would have taken place through, you know, on the street or through a closed drug market and you're putting it online, uh, well, you're removing the possibility for violence to take place. Um, dealers generally have a better idea of, of what they're selling and so customers will have a better idea of what they're selling. Drugs tend to be less adulterated. Um, uh, and, of course, the dealers themselves, because they feel safer, they don't tend to arm themselves the same way. So, you know, they're not worried about deterring violent you know, predators and so on. Um, so there's a, there's a range of benefits mm. that, you know, if, if more of the illicit drugs trade was to go online, we could, you know, we may well see uh, a reduction in those drug-related harms. It's, it's extremely interesting and, and something that I was, uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, just completely blown away because I, I have no acknowledgement of this stuff happening, uh, this dark net. So it's like a whole separate universe 
of trade that's effectively happening through the internet where people can't, they don't know who they're dealing with. Uh, there's no way of knowing where they live, who they are, but they can meet on a platform and they can do a trade of some sort. And then for whether it's weapons, drugs, all these different things. Uh, and then that's, that's how it happens. They, they just transact online without knowing who each other are. Yeah, that's true. So the, the, they won't know their offline identities, but online identity is central. Uh, okay. So this, this is one of the sort of important nuances uh, that's there is that the, the darknet drugs trade is incredibly competitive. Uh, so, you, you know, way more competitive than any physical drug retailing site. You will have thousands, tens of thousands of dealers all trying to compete with one another. And the way that they do that is to try and build a brand. And you build that you know, on the basis of using um, you know, your marketing skills, the two-for-one offers and the loyalty bo- bonus programs and the like, provision of high-quality customer service uh, and products that are at least perceived to be good quality. Uh, and you also do it on the basis of customer feedback. So, uh, and that's customer feedback that the vendors themselves can't change. Uh, they're, not, yeah. they're not in control of, of that, so only, only their customers can. So that it creates this customer-oriented environment that's one of the main attractions, not only interesting enough to, to consumers, but also to the dealers themselves. So we recently uh, wrapped up a study where we interviewed active darknet drug dealers um, using a range of encrypted chat applications. Uh, and what they told us is one of the things that, you know, a lot of them never dealt drugs before the advent of the darknet. They were terrified, not even not even of violence, but of potential confrontations with people. And, you know, that they, they're... Um, uh, the, the mere prospect that they might have to have, you know, try and say no to someone, you know, in in real life, yeah. um, really turned them off. Uh, but once the darknet's there, they were able to control protection. Uh, yeah, have protection, have a sense of agency and control that that didn't otherwise uh, that didn't otherwise exist. So this we call it um, uh, gentrification. You know, this is this kind of gentrified environment where. Uh, customers get to be treated like customers. Drug dealers, you know, get to be brand-aware professionals, um, you know, who, uh, yeah, who cultivate this this larger-scale business. It's it's like it's gone professional. I mean, mm. some of the stuff you were describing, they've got testimonials. We've got attractive refund policies mm-hmm. to try and en- encourage people to do business with them. Yeah. There's reviews, as, as you mentioned, that, that they have no control over, but it's purely from the client. Mm-hmm. There's um, – what else was there? There was uh, – uh, So, yeah, you have reviews. You have uh, – you know, sometimes you have lab tests that are, that are done and the dealers will make uh, that oh, stuff. Send samples. To, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that's – uh, I wouldn't say that's the norm, but it's at the higher end of, of, oh. of the dealers. And, of course, you've got your 24-7, you know, customer support lines and all the rest no, of mate, it. So this, this is sophisticated. This is actually highly commercial and professional now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's concentrated so that there's, um, there's lots of darknet drug dealers out there, but it's a hierarchical uh, distribution. So most of the trade is concentrated in the sort of top, you know, Five percent or so, you know, five to ten percent of dealers that are out there, and they account for the bulk of the sales that are going through. So there's all these dealers beneath them that are doing their darndest to try and you know generate that critical mass of customer feedback and support. Uh, and interestingly, they all learn from one another, you know, because they can they can all see everything. 
Um, and your first day on the job as a darknet drug dealer, you can go out, you can read all the guides that are available on the crypto market discussion forums, things about how to conceal your drugs so sniffer dogs can't detect them or they won't show up in x-ray machines, how to defeat Australian customs. There's forums and blogs. And oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's, there's – um, and for, for people, you know, back in the old days, if you wanted to send drugs in the mail, you know, that's a pretty risky game of um, – you know, trial and error that you're trying to figure out there. Uh, whereas, and the police were the only people sharing intelligence. So, you know, cops in Australia or, you know, between different states or different countries would share information, you know, intelligence with one another about what's happening. But the dealers weren't doing that. But now the dealers are doing it themselves. And as soon as something changes, as soon as, you know, uh, a new scanning procedure, you know, is introduced somewhere, uh, immediately the dealers will know about it because they're alerted by customer feedback. Customers are getting in touch saying, this is, you know, my stuff hasn't arrived. Uh, and then one of them figures out a fix and then they'll, you know, they can share yeah. it and they're a bit of a hero because, you know, they've, they've you know, cracked figured it, it out. figured it out and away you go. It's, um, I mean, it's just, it's incredible that this is, is happening. I mean, and, and what, what year did this start? So Silk Road, the original mm. uh, crypto market that, that sort of, there were, there were proto-sites uh, sites that tried to do similar things, but the, the one that first tied it together in a really compelling, comprehensive way, came online in 20, uh, 2011. 2011. Now, I think you said this bloke was a 26-year-old male mm-hmm. uh, and he, he amassed about $180 million worth of Bitcoin. $80 million. $80 million. Oh, $80 million. Yeah, which would be worth God knows what now. I mean, it was, that was $80 million back, back then. You know? that's, that's a, still a lot of money. Yeah, it is. It's a huge amount of money. And, and was that surprising to most people to find that it was – this 26-year-old mm. young adult that was behind this thing? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, I, I think a lot of people expected it to be some you know, conglomerate of Russian gangsters, you know, with teams of cyber hackers and all the rest of it. They didn't expect it to be such a, a low, uh, I mean, you know, really a low-tech, low-capital startup. You know, it was just uh, this guy... Um, and it, it, Ross Ulbricht, who had, had very explicit political aims with it, which is one of the reasons that the, the US uh, government went so hard after him. He's declared, you know, he, he declared war on the war on drugs. Uh, and Well, he actually declared victory in the war on drugs, which is a bit premature. Three months before he was captured, he did a 10-page interview with Forbes magazine uh, uh, saying that you know, the, the war on drugs was over and the guys with the bongs won. And, uh, yeah, and then he was in prison a few short months after that. But... Yeah, he, he, he had a vision and despite the fact he's in prison now serving a double life sentence plus 30 years, uh, in a lot of ways that vision has come to fruition because you know, his, his mantle has been picked up by, by others. And so, mate, this, this bloke that, that created this Silk Road, mm. how did he get caught if it was all encryption and they couldn't...? There were a number of different... Uh, investigations that were going on at the time. I believe the one that cracked the case for them, I think a few were, were leading them towards this this one bloke. Um, and as I said, you know, encryption works if you use it properly, uh, okay. but there are weaknesses in the system. And I'm, I'm not an IT expert, so I can't I can't speak no. to I can't speak to those. Um, but there were breakthroughs there. But then there was this undercover investigation going on as well. So people, you know, I think one of the things that happened, they um, they uh, a bunch of FBI, undercover FBI operatives came and asked him if they could sell Hitman services on the site, uh, which he said no to. 
at the same time as another uh, undercover FBI was trying to extort him, um, they, they compromised one of the moderators of the site who had access to people's uh, real offline identities. And this guy was going to flip unless uh, Ross Ulbricht paid him, uh, I can't remember the sum of money. But anyway, Ross Ulbricht put two and two together and contracted the FBI to put a hit out on another FBI informant. At least that's my understanding of, of the wow. story. Eileen Ormsby's book, Silk Road, uh, goes into this in better detail. So I might be getting some of the uh, some of the details wrong there. But um, but yeah, that's it. Was his own doing though that led him to him? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So absolutely. so if if he didn't let his guard down and and didn't entertain that, he could still well and truly be out there. Yeah, and this is one of the things. You know, there's more than a hundred of these sites have been uh, launched um, since Silk Road and. They get taken off for various reasons. Scams are one of the biggest ones. So, um, you know, the administrators of the site will just all of a sudden, as soon as there's enough people on the site, there's enough money flowing through it, um, you know, the, the administrator of the site can just shut the site down and all the sites, all the, the bitcoins that are lingering there, it might be a million or two million or whatever, they just take that and you know, go to the Bahamas or wherever. Uh, but the least likely reason that a crypto market goes offline is due to law enforcement intervention. Cops do not have a good record of, of cracking down on these sites. So, uh, mate, the barriers to entry to starting a Silk Road would be, I imagine, quite low, would they? Or? Yeah, yeah, they would be. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they'd be low. Um, and you know, a lot of the the technological know how is is out there and is is readily available. But but it wouldn't be easy. So you need to start. You need to start building that brand. You need to start try, if you want to be creating a Silk Road like a facilitator. There's still a lot of work that needs to go into it. Yeah, and you'd need to be patient as well um, yeah. because there tend to be uh, sort of wrote about this in uh, the last book, um, Crypto Markets Research Companion, where we talked about the crypto market life cycle. Uh, and so the sites generally take, um, you know, six to six to 18 months to sort of reach a level of maturity. But one of the reasons it takes that long is, you know, the sites figure out, how, you know, how to work, how they try and build a customer base. But you've also got to, you've got to wait until some of those mature sites that currently dominate the trade get taken offline. Usually, as I said, because of scams. But they're, they're, most of them tend to run for you know, uh, 12 months, something like that would be considered a healthy lifespan. Mm. And then they go offline and everybody just transfers to a different site. And, and I guess that effectively what happened with Silk Road. I mean, they got the bloke mm -hmm. behind Silk Road, but the buyers and the sellers were still there keen as master to deal. Exactly, which is why yeah, Silk Road 2, which was launched very shortly after Silk Road 1 went offline, uh, very quickly eclipsed in size Silk Road 1. It was obviously a different person. They just call it Silk Road 2. Yeah, yeah. So they leveraged the brand uh, yeah. from from that and then, yeah, they created the new site. Silk Road 2 was up and running, I think, for a year, year and a half, something like that, uh, before it was taken offline. But by then, you know, the genie's out of the bottle and there's... Yeah. Silk Road 2 has been taken off then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think there's been a Silk Road 3 since then as well, which is now offline. Are they offline, people are catching them or because they're just taking all their money and they're going to Bahamas? Tend, it tends to not be people are catching them. So okay. the, the number one reason that these sites go offline is uh, what we call exit scams. So, yeah, that's that's absconding with all the money in the escrow accounts um, uh, uh, that are lurking on the site. Number two reason uh, would be hacks by external parties. So you've uh -huh. got some, you know, dedicated cyber uh, cyber criminals out there who will realise that you know if you can figure out some way of hacking the, the Bitcoin wallets or whatever it might be, uh, you can steal the money that's in the site. And if that happens, that's often fatal to the site. Uh, and then yeah, right down the bottom, then you have um, uh, then you have law enforcement intervention. Yeah, but highly unlikely. It's the least likely reason a site goes offline. Yeah. 
so so people with a premeditated intention to create a facilitate people coming together to buy and sell drugs mm-hmm. online amongst other things and then once they get enough cash that's sitting in the, in there in that account they might just shut the thing down and just go off and, and just take that cash yeah that's the number one reason the sites go offline and it's interesting you know the first time that it happened it never would have happened with silk road you know because russell worked was, was deliberately right yeah he was an ideologue you know he i don't think he i don't think he had I mean, you know, he, he already made eighty million dollars. You know, yeah. it, it's there was he could have done he could have done that at any time, um, and he chose not to. When it first happened, it sort of threw people, and people thought, "Oh, okay, well, you know, this is going to be it. You know, if you can't trust admins, uh, then the system's not going to work." Um, but the dealers that we've spoken to, and indeed, you know, other interviews that that, are, that have been done with, with journalists and so on, speaking to people who are involved in the darknet drugs trade, uh, they just factor it in as a cost of doing business. And they're like, look, if you leave you know, more money than you need to in an escrow account and you lose it and it cripples your business, well, then you're an idiot. You, know, you should, should have factored yeah. this stuff in. So it's, it's kind of a, it's a, not, a, uh, not a well-liked, but certainly a tolerated and expected practice. So if I put myself in a, in a drug dealer's, uh, if I'm gonna sell drugs on there, what's, what's a way I can diversify that risk or, or mitigate the risk of the facilitator the intermediary just shutting the thing down uh so there's different things you could do one is uh just try not to have too many concurrent transactions um that that is waiting in an escrow account uh another would be um so yeah most of these transactions take place with escrow so that is if i'm buying drugs off you um the money doesn't go to you it goes to the admin uh who only authorizes it to go to you once I've received the drugs. Um, but some dealers who have a very good relationship with their customers can do what's called finalizing early, which means it basically skips the escrow process. And so if you're, if you're a high enough ranked dealer, sometimes you can say, hey, I'm only gonna do any you know, more transactions if you finalize early. I've already proved my bona fides. I've got 5,000 yeah. pages of positive reviews. Uh, but then you, know, then you get dealers exit scamming as well. Um, so we've, yeah. we, we see that, that's, that's a common way. Um, so it's not like these risks don't exist, okay. um, but they're, they're not of sufficient magnitude that they pre- preclude the effective functioning of the system as a whole. And James, how much, how much cash are we talking about that's going through this? Not cash, well, how, much, how many dollars are we talking about that's going through the dark net for trading illegal drugs or illicit drugs? The latest estimate that I saw on this um, <clears throat> suggested that last year there was um, 1.5 billion in revenues went through dark net drug sites. So, man, it's not a small thing. It's not a small thing. I mean, it's it's dwarfed by the the offline trade in illicit drugs, uh, which yeah. I think is. I mean, they've stopped doing estimates uh, on it now. But last one I saw, you know, something in the order of three hundred billion dollars. You know, something like that, and mm-hmm. it would be bigger than that now. Um, so it's uh, it's on the margins of that, but it is getting uh, bigger each and every year. And the reason for that is there are, there are benefits both to customers and to the dealers themselves uh, to get involved. What about as it relates to Australia? Is there is there, do you reckon, is there an, an anticip, is there an estimation of dollars that it's being spent in Australia? Uh, I don't know if there's any solid numbers on that. Um, yeah, I, don't, I haven't. Or I is haven't Australia a, a big user on in the crypto space for using it for drugs? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so we're we're one of the world in terms of our participation in the darknet drugs market. I don't have any estimates on value, but yeah, we're one of the world leaders. So we're. Uh, we're third highest in terms of customers who uh, have purchased drugs on the, the darknet in the past 12 months. 
and we're second highest per capita in terms of the number of darknet drug vendors located in the country. Um, second highest in the world. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that, uh, for, for customers, there's, I mean, there are all the usual benefits of, of buying drugs on the darknet that exist for, for people everywhere. So, you know, better quality, um, much better range of drugs. Uh, but of course, if you're an Australian customer, you know, our street prices for, for mo well, pretty much all drugs except cannabis are through the roof by international standards. So I can buy, instead of, you know, buying from my local dealer, I can buy, you know, ecstasy from a dealer in Amsterdam. It'll be better quality and instead of being 30 bucks a pill, it'll be five bucks a pill. So, you know, it's much, much cheaper. But doesn't it get seized at the, when it gets brought in? No, usually not. Yeah, well, I think people, people massively overestimate the capabilities of, of Australian Border Force in detecting drugs at the border. I imagine they're not just putting it in a, a satchel and sending it. I mean, I, I assume that there's must be pretty technical, highly complicated ways they're getting it in. Yeah, yeah, and that's a whole kind of uh, art in itself. Uh, okay. Stealth, they call it, amongst the vendors. And there's there's lots of different techniques you can use. And one of the things that assists them is um, that most darknet drug purchases are relatively, you know, for relatively small quantities of drugs. You know, yeah. two to three hundred dollars is about the average for a darknet. Uh, drug dealer order so you know that might be a couple of grams of cocaine 10 pack of pills you know you can fit that in, in a business envelope or you know you can you can work that into the lining of a christmas card or you know there's there's lots of various strategies and techniques that are out there um and uh it's it is very it's very difficult to do i mean putting myself in the police shoes and border control man i mean how how on earth not to mention the crypto side of everything trying to catch people i mean mm. how do you stop it uh well that's a good question yeah uh well, we're not yeah i think a better question is you know should we stop it um yeah but uh, i take your point you know and this is why i mean peter dutton and home affairs they're um they're sort of banging the drum now that you know we need advanced they need more and more advanced powers enhanced powers to do things like online surveillance you know, and just more money. But, I mean, that's the story of the war on drugs, isn't it? You know, the, the authorities like, oh, okay, well, we can win this if you just give us more money and more powers to, to crack down on people's liberties. Uh, and, of course, that's not what we've seen. You know, it's the, and, and I think it's un unlikely that, you know, unless we live in a fully repressive authoritarian state uh, that we're going to see much of, a, much of a dent happening. If we look at the characteristics of the darknet market, um, one of the, some of the benefits are you have an alias... So you, you, you be whoever you want to be. No one can find you, apparently. Decentralization of products. So it's not coming from one spot. Mm -hmm. It's you could you would be dealing with someone in any country, is that right? Yeah, and you can narrow that down according to whatever search parameters you want. Um so, you know, if you were gonna be buying cocaine, probably wouldn't be particularly clever to buy it from Colombia, um, because that would be, you know, on that would be a red flag. Uh, according to, to Border Force. Uh, but if you bought it from the States, for example, most of our commercial mail comes from the States. It's very easy to, to, uh, to hide that needle in the haystack. You can, uh, what is it? you can also get it posted directly or to a P.O. box or something, which is what these people do. Is that correct? No, most of the time you get it posted to your house and probably under your own name or the, or the name of a previous tenant, uh, something that, that wouldn't alert Right? suspicion of the posties yeah because that's the, that's the most risky uh, as a consumer that would be the most risky phase you know getting it getting it delivered so anything that lowers the the suspicion levels of of the posties actually delivering it is probably what you'd want to do but uh i mean does that mean you'd have to tell the person sending it 
your real name and your address. Yeah, yeah, potentially. Yeah, and there have been people who've been. Um, so usually, sort of good good practice on the part of online vendors is to not keep those details. Um, but there have been people who've been busted post, um, uh, you know, uh-huh. well past a deal taking place. But again, it comes down to a question of resources. So just because that information is there, you know, that um, Sam or James, you know, purchased a gram of cocaine three years ago, you know, what the lengths that law enforcement would have to go to 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 ultimately prove a possession charge yeah. in court. Um, yeah, even just the dangers of the drug dealer from, let's say, Colorado and the States, knowing where who I am and where I live, mm. is there the danger or the, any risk with that? Or because it's so small, they don't really care? Yeah, and I think, I think also people probably, you know, there's there's this very pejorative image of who, of who is a drug dealer, you know, who is who is not, and who you know who is not. And my my mentor Ross Coomer. He's written a book about this pusher myths, uh, which you know breaks down this, you know, and looks at these things like, oh, okay, so you know, do drug dealers, you know, cut up glass and put it into their products, and you know, all these kind of you know little myths and realities. And usually, drug dealers are um, are pretty rational characters, and you know, it's not particularly rational to threaten or or try and kill your customers, you know. And we see that even more so in the online space that people who are drawn to darknet drug dealing probably more risk and conflict averse. And people who are involved in the offline drugs trade. So, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't think it would be... It certainly wouldn't be the biggest risk, uh, okay. you know, that you're running when you're buying drugs online. So it's virtually like a, a, an online eBay for drugs in, in the dark net. And people can come and go, buy products. And now some of these some of these intermediaries or the platforms that you buy stuff through, like these Silk Roads or whatever they're called now... Mm-hmm. They actually have some guidelines. They actually have some rules about things that they would sell and they wouldn't sell. Tell us about some of that because I found that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So all the crypto markets that, that I've ever looked at uh, will have prohibitions that, that they will change. Um, and so these are these are self-imposed, obviously. You know, cause these these are illegal enterprises. Um, but uh, you know, just like in a if you go to any prison, you know, you, you need to keep the the child sex offenders away from the general population because they're not treated well by mates to put it lightly uh so too do you see you know very strict delineation on crypto markets between drugs which are considered to be fair game up to people you know up to the up to people's own choice and things like child exploitation material so you know that's a very strict delineation and that's banned on every every crypto market that i've seen uh there'll be other things like weapons so some sites so uh will will tolerate um sales of sublethal weapons so tasers and things like that others will sell firearms uh, although that's getting less likely now there was one of the lone wolf uh, terror attacks in germany um, carried out in munich with, with a firearm that was purchased from a crypto market uh, and i think that not only uh, shot people as to some of the you know dangers associated with that it also started bringing national security attentions instead of just you know prohibition agencies coming mm-hmm. after you I think a lot of admins were like hey we're not we're not even making close to enough money to justify the amount of heat that this is generating so um, we started to see weapons bans uh, proliferate more and more after that so they started almost having like a moral compass about what they will sell and what they won't sell yeah uh, to not bring attention to themselves, if it's not worth it, no weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some other ones on there as well. What was that, COVID? 
Yeah, no, no fake COVID cures, uh, no fentanyl, which is an interesting one because, you know, drugs is central to their business. Why is no fentanyl? Uh, we started seeing that pop up as a result of the opioid epidemic in the US. Um, and so, again, I think that that would be... Uh, I mean, there's, there's two sort of main explanations and they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, I think they're complementary. Um, you know, that on the one hand... And, th- and this, this was borne out in the, the interviews with the, the dealers that we carried out ourselves, the darknet drug vendors we carried out ourselves, that dealers, you know, are, are generally... You know, they're, 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 human. they're, they're well, they're, well they're, they're people at least, and they yeah. have they have a conscience. You know, the, the idea that they're just sort of drooling psychopaths who don't, you know, work walk around without a, a conscience at all, I think is is inaccurate. Um, yeah, and and well, we had dealers. We had one dealer in particular who told us uh, that back in his early days, he did tra- trade in prescription opioids, and you know, he he uh, sold them to a friend, and that friend ended up getting hooked, and their life went off the rails. And he said that experience really scarred him and he's never quite forgiven himself for it um, but he's never sold opioids since um, so on the one hand you, you've got a sort of moral imperative uh, but on the other of course if it's well I mean it was the leading health uh, concern in the US before COVID um, you know you, you're putting your head above the parapet if you're associated with the opioid epidemic well then you're a threat to you know public health of the country that in a way that if you're just selling cannabis or um, MDMA or whatever that you're not. So there's there's a there's a both a moral and a and a security kind of aspect to it that, that are complementary. Isn't that interesting? And that's the actual intermediary that's deciding that, right? Not the mm, dealer. Not the dealer. Yeah. So the the person running the site. Um, and they they all make their own um, decisions. So yeah. one of the, the other things that we see around prohibitions, which is really interesting. So the original Silk Road site did allow weapons. Well, they allowed it on their sister site. It was called the Armory. Um, but they didn't allow anything to do with products uh, that are associated with theft or fraud in any way. Um, but once Silk Road was shut down, the the crypto markets that were in operation were carding forums, where stolen credit card information were uh, being sold, and that was quite a you know, it was a niche but an active sort of trade. Um, but then what happened once Silk Road w- was taken offline? Suddenly the carding forums went we should just add a drugs category and we're ready to go. We've got a side up and running. And so suddenly you've got all these people, drug users migrating over who are exposed to, oh, you can buy stolen credit card information on this side as well. Uh, so you started yeah, right. to see, you know, emerging of um, these different sort of criminal underworlds uh, that, yeah, you know, every site's got their own prohibitions, but there's a, there's a lot more crossover between illicit product categories uh, than we've seen previously. Did that ex- exacerbate the problem? It's a good question. I don't know. Good yeah. question for okay. further research. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we know that you know credit card fraud, you know, and carding is, is you know, yeah. I mean, cybercrime in general is is, is the big you know, sort of crim issue. Well, one of the big crim issues, you know, the twenty first century. If I'm a dealer and there's hundreds of these different sites that I can go to to sell my stuff on, would I would I have hooks in different ones? Like, would I have be on more than one site and building a platform, a profile on each of those? Yeah, so, um, I mean, there's, there's more than 100 of these sites been created since Silk Road, but most of them have gone offline again now. Um, okay. Usually there's, you know, between two and four sites that will make up the bulk of, of the trade that is out there with smaller sites in development sort of wait, waiting for those opportunities to, to emerge once a site gets taken offline for whatever reason. Um, yeah, and we see the top dealers will have, uh, you know, accounts across four, five, you know, of the site. So if any one of them gets, you know, taken down, their trade won't even, individually won't be interrupted at all. 
I just think this is so fascinating. Like I, I just never knew it was this sophisticated. Mm. And and when I'm thinking it with a business mind, like I mean, how do they market themselves? Do they go and market? Can you market to other users through the platform? Yeah, like, I mean, you get on the discussion forums. Um, you buy space in the newsletter. Uh, yeah, I, like, I, I don't know if there's any equivalent of that. Um, but yeah, you would. Uh, you can do freebies. Um, you can generate dummy transactions, so you can buy from yourself. Um, uh, which Give is reviews to yourself. Yeah, it's one of the things that it's it's actually kind of tolerated. It's sort of expected that you would do that to a certain extent to get those first few positive reviews happening. Um, it gets much more difficult to game the system once you're talking thousands of reviews because the site charges a commission as well, and also it is policed. You know, to some extent, admins are on the lookout for fraudulent behaviour. So. Um, I think if you were considered to be, uh, you know, taking the mickey, then, you know, you, your account would be banned. Um, but, yeah, you, you want to use all of the different marketing techniques available to, to you. And, you know, I mean, we've, we've written a, a bit about this in, um, uh, in some of our recent publications about these interviews that we conducted, how, how you get started. Um, but it's, it's interesting uh, talking to these dealers about it and and them dealing with these kinds of challenges because, you know, that's, they, they, at least the people that we spoke to found it really challenging and satisfying, you know, building this brand um, and not having to deal with problematic, you know, uh, customers, you know, who might be threatening, not having to deal with organised crime groups, you know, who, who want to take a cut or want to put a bullet in your leg or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk about that, that then. Some of the benefits of doing trade over the dark net as opposed to in person. Mm. Uh, obviously, you don't have to meet with anybody in the dark alley during night so that the risk of in- engagement mm-hmm. or violence would go down. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's anonymous, mm-hmm. you don't really need to get to know people. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are some of the other benefits? Yeah, so no violence is a uh, big one. I mean, threats, um, uh, things like doxing, which is the release of uh, identifying information, uh, they, they occur, uh, but, you know, they're, they're pretty rare. Um, uh, yeah, usually, and, and that's because customer, uh, vendors, rather, they're competing with one another, and the way that they compete is to be customer-oriented, to offer the best level of service that's out there, try and attract that reputation, get that good customer feedback. Um, so, yeah, so lack of violence, increased range of choice. Um, so, you know, if you want you want whatever niche drug type you want, you'll be able to find it on the dark net. Um, so particularly attractive for, uh, well, I mean, drug users of all kinds want, want what they want. Um, so uh, your access, high quality, high quality product of yep. the product? Yep, so quality tends to be better for a couple of reasons. One, because there's this hyper-competitive marketplace that tends to, you know, the, the dealers who sell the best stuff. You want the best. Tend to be the ones who, who attract the most custom. Um, but also, and this is particularly the case in a place like Australia where, um, you know, if I buy from an overseas vendor, you know, if I'm buying MDMA from a, from a vendor who's located in the Netherlands, that's much closer to the source and there's much less opportunity for adulteration. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm buying from someone there, it's, you know, in bypassing the trafficker. Um, Cut you know. the middleman out. Yeah, and this is actually, and this, just to tie this back to the law enforcement question for a second, um, illicit drugs are the, the lifeblood of, of organised crime in this country um, and they make a fortune on... Um, on overcharging Australian customers, basically, uh, and Australian drug consumers have proven that they'll pay those very high costs. 
if I was a police officer, you know, in charge of the police and I was interested in, you know, public health and safety and dismantling organised crime, well, if all the drug users out there started buying their, their stuff cheaper directly from the Netherlands, you would you'd be cutting out of the supply chain, all of the local bikey gangs, the, you know, the drug uh, street-level retailers, the international traffickers. I mean, it would be a bit like, I think, um, you know, Myers and David, David Jones back in the 90s, you know, where if you wanted to go buy shoes, you know, there's, there's one place you go, right? Um, and online drug retailing has decimated those retailing yeah. industries in, in the legitimate sector. Um, so too could we be on the cusp of seeing that sort of transformation in the drug world. I'm definitely keen to hear more thoughts about that decriminalisation of, of the drug trade because uh, I know you've got some good thoughts on that. But going back to it, so, so lower cost, higher quality, yep. um, no violence, a lower risk of arrest? Lower risk of arrest or at least that's a perception that is, that is out there. Um, so yeah, actually, you know, Quantifying these in hard terms is, is difficult to do. Um, yeah. Less stigma. Less stigma. And that's the other thing, yeah, when we speak to people about why, uh, why they like it, a lot, of the, a lot of it comes down to the experience, the user experience of actually going there. Um, you don't need to worry. You know, there's certainty that you are going to find a dealer. So if you don't have those you know, good social networks of, of trying to access drugs, you don't need to worry about that. Um, uh, and you get treated well. You're treated like a customer. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, yeah. It's highly highly professional. Yep. The way the way that they're dealing with this. And and there's an incentive not to kill their client. Yes. I mean, let's talk about that for a second because you don't want to give people a certain batch or or overdose. Uh, you know, you don't want to be selling is that why some of them don't sell certain products? Because they want to make sure that their client's gonna be around long term, like yeah, and I think that that's probably. I mean, I think that's probably the case for for most offline drug dealers as well. I mean, again, I mean, there'd, there'd be a moral aspect to that, but also, you know, it'd be the surest fire way to to make sure the cops are on your back as well as if you know you've, you've sold someone some dodgy drugs and there's a dead body that needs to be accounted for. Um, so, you know, I'd say that that, that exists um, both in the offline and, and online drugs trade. The difference, though, of course, is that on the online trade, you've got all of the feedback from all your previous customers. I mean, that's you're not going to get bad feedback if you, if you kill one of your customers because they're not going to be providing any, <laughs> any feedback at all. But um, but if it's considered to be substandard, you know, if I'm buying um, drugs off some you know rando at a at a music festival, I've got no idea of what their record is. Whereas if I'm doing yeah. it online, I've got you know sometimes thousands of interactions, you know, transactions that I can look back over. James, let's talk about who who these people are that are actually online. Uh, is there any patterns? Is I know you've done a lot of research on this, but who's using the crypto markets for drugs? Well, uh, and this this kind of ties. It's a, it's a great question, and it ties into some of the barriers to entry. So you know, originally, uh, you know, some of the conceptual work I did in this area was thinking, wow, you know, these crypto markets are going to change everything. You know, we're going to we're going to have drug producers selling directly to customers, and it's going to you know, it's going to revolutionise everything. Um, and that hasn't, uh, uh, while we're seeing steady changes, it hasn't hasn't been the fast sort of revolution that some of us were thinking back in the early days. And one of the reasons for that is because not everyone can access a crypto market. Um, so you need to have a uh, minimal amount of technical proficiency. You need to get your head around um, encryption. Uh, it's nothing that, you know, somebody who's reasonably well-educated couldn't figure out, you know, in a couple of hours at an internet cafe. But... 
you know, there's a lot of people who wouldn't be able to do that, you know. Um, so, you know, illiterate people or people with, without that sort of that basic uh, competency, you need to have access or you know, own or at the minimal level have access to a computer that you can install this encryption software on. You need a bank account. You need to link that to your uh, electronic currency wallets. And you need to understand how all those things work. So immediately, you know, you're precluding homeless drug users, um, people, you know, that, that don't have significant... Uh, sufficient cognitive ability to, to manage all of those kinds of things. Um, so when we're looking at users, um, well, they're skewed uh, towards men, you know, between the ages of 20, 40, probably with higher levels of education. That's that's who's buying the drugs or that's who's dealing them? That's who's buying the drugs. Yeah. Okay. A and is this not a way that is, is it, does it not make sense that people can just set themselves up as a dealer on this to buy large amounts wholesale and then have their distribution chain around their community or their city or whatever it is. Or you can just sell it back on the dark net. I mean, this is one of the things that we see, particularly it's an opportunity that exists for Australian. Repackage. Yeah, vendors is um, online to online buyer vendors, we call them. Um, and in, in places like Australia where there's, um, what are we, what's the term? Oh, yeah, in economic terms, we call it an arbitrage position where you can leverage yeah. the price differences between two different markets. So let's just say for MDMA, for example, um, you know, uh, the, the Dutch dealer selling it for five bucks a pop. In Australia, the street price is, you know, 30, you know, roughly or $25 a pop. I can, you know, I can, I can charge $20 per pill or $15 per pill, you know, and still sell at you know below the market rate and probably have a better product as well so you take the risk on the international importation of it yep and then you then because when people are searching in the search bar yep. you can just narrow it down to just australia exactly yeah so, so you take the risk which yep. in you know if you know what you're doing uh, as we discussed is usually pretty low and also the other thing that that disincentivizes people from buying from overseas vendors despite the low price. So you've got the risk on the one hand, but you've also got the length of time it takes. Um, so if I'm buying from a local vendor and I get express post, it could be there in a day or two. If I'm buying it from Europe, it might take you know three, four weeks to arrive depending on the time of year. Um, and that's three, four weeks that I might be a bit worried that it could be intercepted by customs at any point. So there's uncertainty tied in with... Um, with the with the delay as well, so it's more than simple inconvenience. It's a, the, we think there's a compounding of those two um, things that disincentivise. Uh, and yeah, I've written about this in a paper called uh, An Island Apart, um, which talks about the risk tariff. Um, but of course, what that does is it is it actually protects Australian organised crime uh, because they're able to benefit from the more risky the Australian border is perceived um, will deter customers from buying, but it won't deter deter local organised crime groups from getting stuff into the country. Um, so they leverage that risk to charge higher prices. Yeah, right. Mate, this is, I mean, it's, if we're talking about any other product, I mean, it'd make, I mean, it makes sense as it is right now, but I mean, just the fact that the market is the, is what it is, the drug trade, I mean, it's just it's just amazing to me that this is how it's, it's operating and, and the economics are so simple as just transferable as any other industry. Yeah, they are. And this is, when you know, the economic... I've gotten more and more into uh, the economics of it because when you look at the numbers that are, that are there, when you look at the, the demand that exists, the prices that people pay for illicit drugs um, the and the amounts that's spent on law enforcement and the lack of support... Um, 
for drug prohibition and you know the, the numbers of people who are not deterred, um, it it becomes very very plain that the drug war is completely unwinnable and we, that we need to find better solutions. Twenty percent of market of the market that buys online in the last twelve months is twenty percent of the drug trade. Was that was that what that was twenty percent of the? Oh, what's so yeah. the estimation for that? That twenty percent figures from the latest uh, global drug survey, um, okay. and uh, that reported amongst Australia. So uh, amongst respondents to the global drug survey, Australian respondents um, uh, who had purchased drugs in the last twelve months, twenty percent of them said that they'd purchased from a darknet drug market. Okay. Yeah. And then twenty five percent purchased for themselves. Yeah, this, so that's, that was from a different study, but 25% of people who purchase drugs on crypto markets, um, it's thought that they would be uh, buying not just for themselves, but also to, 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 to give to others as well. So okay. whether that's social supply or, or commercial on selling as well. I mean, it must be hard to get these numbers because... I mean, you're dealing in a world, or, or is it, or is it easier? It's because actually really easy to get the numbers. That's is that the funny right? thing. Yeah, because the customer feedback exists, um, and the seller pages exist. And you know, we've got dealers who tell us the exact price that they sell drugs for. They tell us what country they're located in. Wow. Um, because they feel protected in the encryption. Because they are protected. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and they feel protected. So we we know way more about the darknet trade and illicit drugs than we do in the offline. Uh, drugs trade because these sites operate out in the open. Um, so they're anonymous uh, or pseudo-anonymous uh, to be more specific, um, but, uh, but they're very transparent as well. What's the, what are people buying? What's the highest or the most popular products they're buying? This might surprise people, but the number one product category sold uh, both internationally and here in Australia is, is cannabis. Marijuana? Yeah. Oh, that's... The I thought it would have been something a bit harder than that. Yeah, you'd think so. Uh, but this is one of the interesting things that, um, that our research uh, and, that, and that of colleagues around the world as well has, has turned up is that, you know, one of the, the moral sort of panics around the darkness is that, oh, okay, well, you know, people are going to be taking these new increasingly weird and wacky drugs and new psychoactive substances. Uh, but that tends not to be the case. People tend to go to these sites to access the drugs that are already popular. So number one... Uh, by far around the world is cannabis, despite the fact that cannabis is readily available here in Australia and pretty cheap. People still like getting it online. And the reason for that um, is because you can get the exact type of cannabis you want. You know, you might want something with oh, a bit more of a sativa strains. strain or an indica strain. Instead of yeah. just buying weed, you know, generic yeah. weed from your local dealer, you can get exactly the kind of weed that you want. Um, yeah, and following that, um, usually we've got... Uh, different kinds of prescription drugs. Um, so, you know, this... And often this will be tied to, um, uh, you know, be for good for come downs, for example. So you've got, you know, somebody's buying MDMA, they want to have fun on a Friday or Saturday night, but then they want some temazepam or, you know, more Valium or whatever to help them with a come down on a, on a Sunday. Um, so... That's why that's that's why they do that. Yeah. Prescription drugs. Yeah, yeah. So pres- come down. Prescription drugs... Um, uh, also, in the states, particularly, we see prescription opioids. Um, you know, that's that's part of the you know big part of the opioid epidemic yeah. over there. Then ecstasy, then meth. Uh, so ecstasy, cocaine, meth's quite low down the list. Um, yeah. Psychedelics. Yeah, psychedelics uh, of lots of kinds. Um, I've seen more recent figures um, suggesting things like ketamine um, and GHB are getting higher up that list as well, which is more concerning, particularly for GHB, because it's it's you know associated with some pretty serious negative health outcomes. What's that stand for? Sorry, mate. Uh, gamma hydroxy... 
Okay. Butyl- What's that in? Is that in? It's um, uh, it's. It's, it's kind of a party drug. Uh, okay. You know, you take it with droppers, but it's easier to overdose if you have, you know, yeah. three drops instead of two. You know, that, that's enough to put people into some pretty serious wow. medical medical danger. Um, yeah. This is, I mean, it's just so intriguing that this, this world exists. I just can't... It's just, it's just amazing. Is it, so is that... Do you think that online demand for those drugs that you just listed... Do you think that's reflected in the offline market as well? Yeah, yeah, we think it is. So one of the ways that we demonstrated with this, um, uh, there was a paper that um, well, it was an interesting effect that we saw. So there was a, a previous um, longitudinal study done, one of the best, you know, the fantastic um, team at the Carnegie Mellon Scilab led by Nicholas Christen. Um, and they pioneered the use of these automated software crawlers that I talk about that hoover up all the data on these sites, so customer feedback and vendor pages and et cetera, et cetera. And they released this paper back in 2015 that um, uh, looked at the composition of the darknet drugs trade across all the crypto markets that they could find. And they found that um, product categories, so you know, cannabis being number one, um, followed by MDMA, uh, but there was a shift that occurred um, in late 2014. And we saw this... Um, basically a sustained doubling of um, the number of prescription drugs that were being sold online. Now, Nicholas Christen and his team didn't offer any account into what what was behind that or even what kinds of prescription drugs there were. So me and some, um, some colleagues started looking into it and um, uh, what we found was uh, all that doubling uh, was all in the United States and it was all prescription opioids. And it all happened uh, in one week. And it just happened to be the week that the US Drug Enforcement Administration released new supply-side restrictions on the most popularly prescribed uh, opioid analgesics. So that was hydrocodone and oxycodone. Um, and so they passed this new legislation that used to you know, have very liberal access to these drugs. Suddenly, there were a whole bunch of people who were addicted to these drugs whose prescriptions were useless. And they turned to, well, some of them turned to the dark net, but our argument that we made in the British Medical Journal that we got this published in was that th- this is just a small segment and it's indicative of broader changes that are happening uh, in demand and, and indeed supply in illicit drug markets generally. Mate, I mean, the opioids, mate, I mean, there must be, it must be a bad thing getting hooked on these opioids. I mean, I, I don't really know much about it, but I, th- I feel like... I mean, it's big business in the States, but it's also becoming a p- real problem in Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, and, and your your members, I was just having a, a chat with a lady uh, uh, before who runs a, a detox centre and she said one of the, the hardest drugs is, is opioids. Um, yeah, so, you know, you, you definitely don't want to get addicted to it, for sure. Yeah. It's it's really, really interesting. And the, the patterns, is, is there patterns of what people are, are doing with these drugs when they buy them because I imagine when they when they're getting them I know that there was you said that the average dollar sale let's call it that for, for the sake of the business is quite low so it's a couple hundred so people using it for their own use predominantly is what we're assuming yep their own use and social supply as well maybe just sorting out th- okay. them and their mates them and their mates but it, is it not also broadening the spectrum for the capacity of what different drugs they can now go out there and and deal mm. um so if if i was just a marijuana dealer yes all of a sudden now my arsenal i've got all these different things that i can buy yep. and 
and increase the average dollar sale and and so is that was that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, so that's that's um uh, we call that drug diffusion, and my other colleague uh, Judith, Judith Aldridge has uh, has written a paper around this, and yeah, the, this idea that um, crypto markets might be facilitating access to a broader range of drugs, not just amongst people who use crypto markets, but amongst the drug using population more generally, because yeah, drugs drug suppliers could be getting their supply, and that's wider than it would be otherwise. Um, the thing that sort of works against that is that most people, as far as we can tell, and what the data from crypto markets suggests, already know what drugs they want to take. Um, so, you know, people who like weed will want more weed, you know, and they might want, you know, better strains or whatever. Um, but people tend to, um, they might sample a wider variety of drugs in that sort of honeymoon period when they can first get access to them, but then they tend to, t to stick with the ones that they were using previously. Um, so that potential does definitely exist, but I don't think we're seeing strong evidence for it yet. What, what are some of the implications of this growth in the crypto markets uh, for drugs and illicit drugs in Australia? What, I mean, what do we, what do you see are going to be the follow-on effects of this? Because it's only going to get bigger and bigger. I assume mm -hmm. we can only just expect that. Yeah. What's the implication for society? What's the implication on? drugs for the war against drugs mm -hmm. i mean where are you seeing this go uh so i think for it depends from which sort of perspective that we look at it i think yeah. from a drug user perspective there are lots of benefits um uh you know and we, we've talked about those cheaper yeah. better quality etc uh safer um for public health in general i would say you know effects are likely to be either neutral or good um, that being, uh, you know, if there's fewer people overdosing because they've got a better idea of what they're using. Less violence. Less violence. Drug dealers aren't buying guns because they're not worried about getting rolled by other drug dealers. Yeah, there's broader benefits, even if, you, if you're not a drug user, that could, um, that could be there. Um, if you're in law enforcement and your priority is public safety, you could well likely see benefits there as well. If your priority is the number of drug arrests you're getting, um, so, you know, the USD Drug Enforcement Agency, for example, hates these uh, sites because they're so difficult to investigate and you've got a problem on your hands. Uh, but I think the biggest losers, and we sort of touched on this a little bit before, uh, are, are the drug retailers themselves. If you're in, involved in offline drug retail or in Australia, if you're involved in you know, importing ecstasy into the country, if these sites keep growing at the trajectory that they are, they they're going to be the Myers and David Jones of the drug world. You know, they're they're going to significantly see their product their, their profits eaten into by smaller, more nimble online competitors. Just the way that we saw those retailing giants uh, over the '90s and early 2000s. James, we've spoken about the USA briefly about the states and their how they're trying to deal with it, I guess. But do you see any other country that has got their hand on this that says, okay? We've got control of this through crypto. Where the reason that we're not up there with Australia is because we've figured out the encryption. We're we're being able to to nail people that are using this stuff, and so now all of a sudden there's no market for it, or is that just that doesn't exist? No, I think the places where where crypto markets aren't a really big thing yet are the places where the police have absolutely no handle on the drugs trade at all, or perhaps a bigger hand in the drugs trade than they do places like Australia so you know the places where there's just no necessity for it at all um, but uh, no I, I don't think there's there's any country there's any country that that is on top of this technology such that it, it wouldn't be attractive to use 
do you see at some point in the future that it's push of a button or a magic code would all, all of a sudden unmask all these people that are sitting here online? Like, I mean, is that, is that a possibility or unlikely? You know, it was something I was more worried about back in the early days. You know, we thought, okay, yeah. this, you know, this, this whole thing could you just, trust it? <laughs> yeah, the whole thing could fall over um, and unmask people. Um, you know, like I'd never say, I'd never say never. Uh, but I think if if the if the tools, um, you know, so if there was some massive advance in AI that rendered encryption, you know, of this of this power uh, untenable, well, then there's going to be a lot more problems than just you know disruptions to the dark net drug markets you know banking traditional banking systems won't work you know there, there'll be there'll be yeah there won't just be this going on there are going to be lots and lots of problems if um yeah if, if that comes to pass so um yeah so who knows and you got the cryptocurrencies as well because i assume you can just deal in this in the crypto uh in the cryptocurrencies mm-hmm. not just bitcoin so yeah, there's there's other more secure ones now. Monero's kind of um, seems to be the one that has better. Uh, it's harder. It's harder to track even than Bitcoin uh, is. And so, you know, these as oh. as uh, law enforcement and the authorities make try and catch up. Yeah, just then gets further away. Exactly. You get these innovations happening, and then for the police to catch up, it's you know it's that much uh, it's that much uh, trickier. And I, I have to say. You know, I think that the advantage has, has been with the dealers since the start of the war on drugs, but this digital aspect um, complicates work of people trying to catch up that much more, you know, raises the bar, the amount of resources, the amount of training, you know, and personnel you need to, to have. Um, you know, it's, it's just beyond, it's beyond what law enforcement agencies can consistently you know, manage. I mean, it's probably a good time then just to get into the fact that what if it was legal? Yeah, uh, well, you know, I think amongst drug experts um, and certainly amongst criminologists, you know, who, who have a, a, you know, I think a, a good grasp of the drug situation, um, I mean, there are some no-brainers out there, you know. I, I don't think there's any any really compelling argument that cannabis shouldn't be legalised and I think you could make a good case for a range of other drugs that um, sit relatively low on that harm scale and of course, you know, alcohol you know, on a per capita usage basis is is the most harmful drug. Um, you know, around other drugs like uh, methamphetamine and, and heroin um, or, or crack cocaine, you know, there's legitimate debates to be had about whether you want to have a legal supply um, of those. Uh, and I think, you know, there's arguments you can make both for and against that. But I think that there would be, at the very least, good arguments to be made that you should decriminalise those drugs so that um, at least people who are, are caught in, you know, for personal use don't face criminal sanction. Um, and indeed in places where we've seen this, so Portugal famously decriminalised all drugs back in 2001. All drugs? All drugs. Amidst howls of protests, you know, people like, the sky's going to fall in, everyone's going to be on drugs, um, and, you know, we're going to have drug tourists, you know, people going to come in, you know, it's going to be because we've got the beaches as well. And it just didn't happen. Um, and... Uh, you know, but what did happen is that people who had drug problems um, were less stigmatised. There were there were uh, increases in numbers of people who were uh, seeking treatment for drug addictions, uh, and there was a huge number of people who weren't going to prison, and all the cost savings that were there as well. So I think people massively overestimate the deterrent effect of the law in actually uh, deterring 
uh, drug use and particularly problematic drug use. Because that's a fear, isn't it? If if we legalise it, all of a sudden everyone, all these people start getting hooked and then crime will go up because they're doing all this different stuff that they wouldn't otherwise normally do if they weren't on this stuff. I mean, but reality is you're saying with proof of concept from other countries that have adopted this, mm. that it actually doesn't work that way in, at all. Uh, none of the countries who have seen these policies introduced, uh, that has happened. And, you know, we can, we can look... I mean, these aren't just... You know, these aren't like massively culturally different places. You know, we've got you know, Western European countries. We had um, Canada introduce federal legalisation for cannabis um, just recently, a couple of years ago. Um, and teen cannabis use went down when they did that. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's the, the, the opposite. You know, if you're a transgressive teenager and you want to sort of thumb your nose to the, to the man, well, you can't do it by smoking pot now. You're just, yeah. you're just a pothead. So, you know, you can actually suck a peel um, from using illicit drugs, you know, you don't get that transgressive kind of excitement. So, um, yeah. So, so you're saying we should uh, legalise cannabis and so what, what are some of the other low-risk drugs? Uh, well, uh, there's um, drugs that are low-risk and also have high therapeutic potential, so a range of psychedelics would fall into that, things like okay. psilocybin. We, see, we saw this in Oregon recently. They, um, uh, I, think, I think it was Oregon legalised psilocybin. Um, I think you could make an argument around MDMA as well. Um, and you'd need to carefully think through, you know, what those di distribution chains would look like, who would have access. Um, you know, were you going to have a legal, uh, like a private industry that's, you know, well-regulated or would you have a, a government like they, uh, like in Quebec, uh, I was over there and I went to one of the, the government-run weed stores um, and it's like a Starbucks but it's government-run and you buy the government... So the government were farming it themselves? They're making it? Uh, I don't know if the government were farming it. The go okay. government was selling it. Okay. Um, and it's tested by the government. And, yeah, there's various proposals to try that out here in Australia as well. But, yeah, there's, there's definitely – I think that there's – you know, because we don't need answers to all the questions now. I think there's some low-hanging fruit. Um, test the waters with. Yeah, that you test the waters with. Uh, exactly. So, mar so marijuana, I'm just trying to think of – the other drugs, so ice and stuff, I mean, you're saying right now you wouldn't sort of look at that and just try and test it with these other ones? Yeah, I think um, I think having a legal market for methamphetamine at the moment, I mean, you know, even talking about decriminalising these drugs, you know, the, the state of the political debate in Australia uh, is pretty febrile and disappointing. Uh, a lot of that's got to do with tabloid media and Murdoch media um, in particular. Um, deliberately dumbing down this debate and turning it into, you know, an emotive, tough on crime being, you know, sort of affected, which is which has never been. Um, uh, but oh, wait, I've lost my train of thought. Where, where no, that's okay. Do you, is it organised crime? Mm. Uh, does that would they still exist? I mean, if let's just say marijuana, for instance. Do, I mean, in in Canada and the states, is there still a market? For for these people to be out there dealing drugs illegally or is, is everyone all of a sudden going clean and, and just making it into a normal, profitable commercial business? Yeah, there are... Because that's the goal, right? I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the real benefits of, um, of legalising a product like cannabis is, you know, you can regulate the product, so the product itself, you know, doesn't have illegal pesticides or, you know, whatever... Uh, there, but the the big advantage is yeah you can you can deal uh, this blow to organised crime by having a legal market. So to do that, it's it's to do that you need to price it at um, 
at an appropriate level and you need to have it needs to be accessible enough um so um is there for people that are starting to grow it legally over there is there threats and stuff from the people that were doing it illegally saying hey you're now competing against us in our turf is, is it, does that happen uh i don't know yeah, yeah i'm not sure yeah i'd need to i'd need to look into that I, from what i can gather um uh, i didn't even through this paper, uh, but there are, there is the black market industry is is hanging on in some quarters in Canada. It hasn't been it hasn't completely wiped it off the map. But if you're smoking a you know if you're smoking a joint in Montreal next to a cop, uh, the cop's not going to tell you off for smoking the joint, but he may ask you for a receipt um, just to make sure it's been legally purchased. Um, so you know the the thing about having legal supply out there is that it allows police to concentrate where they really need to, or where I would argue where they really should, and that is on, on the violence, on the organised crime, rather than the drugs per se. So when we say legalising drugs, we're saying that people legally, when they're caught with a supply for their own personal use, that's okay. Uh, that should be okay. But yeah. the suppliers, should the suppliers still be? So there's two, there's two different things that... Um, so what you've described then, um, usually we'd, we'd call decriminalisation, Okay. So that is removing the criminal penalties associated with the illegal drug. Okay. Um, so the drug's still not legal to to buy or to sell, um, but a bit like uh, you know if you if you go speeding in your car, right? Yeah. You're not going to end up in jail. You might get a fine. You might get a referral to, gotcha. well, you know, a different kind of service. You know, driving safe driving or, course. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly that sort of thing. Or or maybe none of those things. You know, there's different there's there's different shades of decriminalisation that different countries can employ. Um, so that's removing criminal penalty associated with personal use, but um, uh, supply, so production, trafficking, you know, retailing will still, would still be illegal. Um, Legalisation refers to actually having a legal supply chain for the product. Um, so, you know, the same way that we do with, with uh, booze and, and cigarettes, you know, that there's, you can buy that legally. And, and, and like alcohol and cigarettes, there's restrictions. You know, you can't be uh, you know, someone under the age of 18. You can only buy, yeah. sell between these hours. You can only consume in certain uh, in certain places. So legalization doesn't mean a free for all. It just means it comes under state control instead of being in control of the, the gangsters. People uh, dealing illegally in supplying alcohol. Oh, you mean to minors and stuff like that? Uh, oh yeah. No, I just mean that there's. Um, uh, so the fact that alcohol is illegal doesn't mean it's a free for all that you can you can just buy it and sell it sell it willy nilly. There's still okay. controls about gotcha. who it can be sold to. So when people talk about um, legalizing illicit drugs, one of the straw man arguments is like, oh, okay, so you want everyone out on drugs all the time, and you'd be like, well, no, we don't do that with any of the you know, drugs that we sell. Really, well, actually, I mean, coffee, you can you know, buy it <laughs> wherever you want. Uh, but you know, a lot of psychoactive. You know, drugs, no, of course not. You know, and you yeah. have rules about driving, for example, and, you know, what different enforcement mechanisms available. And, mate, the resources that this would release, uh, I mean, when you think about most people in jail, mm-hmm. probably related to drugs. Yeah, so there's, um, in Australia, it costs uh, between $100,000 and $140,000 a year to keep someone in a medium security prison. That's one person. That's one person. Um, wow. So, I mean, you know, just just think about the saving of that, and and also, of course, that person while they're in prison is uh, they're not well, they're certainly not employed, they're not paying tax, um, you know, they're not out there living 
living their life, you know, being a consumer, any, you know, I mean, this is talked about in sort of cold economic terms, which is actually where I think this argument would be won, uh, and it's where it's been won in the United States, because pe people have been making moral arguments about the war on, drug, uh, war on drugs since it was first, uh, well, since, you know, its various sort of relaunches and iterations over the, over the course of the 20th century. Uh, but what's winning the argument and, uh, is the economic argument, um, that when you look at the amount of money, A, that can be sold um, by not having... I mean, the yeah. cost of them being in the system. Yeah, I mean, even you know, even in this country where um, you know there's different cautions and diversionary schemes for you know low-level cannabis. You know, no one's really worried about going. To, you know, well, most people would not be. Most cannabis users would not be worried that they'll land in jail if they get caught with a joint. Although, of course, if if you're from the wrong kind of disadvantaged communities and you know indigenous communities and heavily policed communities, that that may well happen. Um, but uh, most arrests and most drug charges in this country are for possession quantities of cannabis. It takes up a huge amount of police resources, it takes a huge amount of court time, and it takes, uh, it takes up custodial you know, dollars as well. Are we seeing proof of that in those countries that they've legalised it, that it's actually done that? So oh, it's, it's created money. less stress yeah. on the Absolutely. system, it's Absolutely. they're now back spending in the economy, they're saving... Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and there and there are positive health come, outcomes as well. And Portugal, I mean, you know, Portugal. Uh, so it was, you know, it was two thousand one, nearly twenty years ago. They did this. Uh, they have one of the worst heroin usage rates in the world, um, and uh, problems associated with um, proliferation of, of uh, or spread of bloodborne uh, viruses, HIV, and so on. Um, and uh, there have been huge improvements across the board. So they've gone from the worst to one of the best performers now. Um, that's that's actually amazing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's it's a real inversion of the you know the, the so-called you know, common sense thinking. Um, but uh, but tough on drugs is not tough on drugs. You know, tough on crime is not tough on crime. You need to be smart about these policies, and the evidence is very, very, very compelling in this direction. So, mate, how soon do you think this? I mean, we'll adopt this sort of stuff, if at all. Uh, well, you never know. You know, um, these. I mean, if if you told me, you know five, ten years ago that, you know, most states in the US you'd be able to buy cannabis legally, I would have I would have laughed at you. You know, it just it would have seemed bizarre that in the uh, that in a place as, as ideologically um, uh, polarized and, you know, and I mean they you know they've got a political system that's in real quiet crisis. Mm. But you've seen really successful drug law reform. So, you know, it can seem like uh, change is not possible, but then all of a sudden, you know, a bunch of dominoes fall quite quickly. Um, uh, so, yeah, I th when are we going to see it here? You know, that's very difficult to, to answer. Will we see it here? Yeah, I, I think we will. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's very unlikely if the US goes down this track, you know, and, and other countries, you know, Canada, that we like to compare ourselves to, you know, I don't think Australia would be left out there, and you know, by itself for too long. James, as we look to the future for you, I mean, what, what's... What's what are you up to? What are you going to be doing next? I mean, it's this is super exciting. Just talking to you for the last hour or so about this, but I mean, what are you up to? Are you, have you got other research projects? Are you going to get more into it? Are you yeah, I mean, I've been getting more and more into this, uh, you know, into the economic side of these drug markets. Looking at, um, yeah, how they operate. Uh, you know, what are the, what are the effects? You know, of policing on these markets. Um, so I think probably whatever I do, I'll be staying in the drug space. Um, you know, that's that's something that really interests me. I've always been fascinated by that, and you know, by organised crime. 
Um, yeah, drug trafficking, you know, local drug markets, that's, that's always there. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully still in academia. Unis uh, are under a lot of pressure at, at yeah. the moment. Um, I just lost uh, five of my colleagues became involuntarily redundant on Friday, yeah, um, which, you know, is happening in universities and departments all all across the country, um, and that's a deliberate government policy. You know, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're pulling money out of, of universities right at the time where we're, you know, we don't have international students coming in. So it's a double, it's a double blow. Um, so hopefully universities can still survive. Uh, hopefully I still have a, have a job. Yeah. Um, uh, because, yeah, I do love working in this space, and it's, you know, it's a real honour and a privilege to, to both research and to teach students as well. You've just spoken about COVID, obviously, and the devastating impact that's had on universities and your colleagues. Uh, it's so sad. Uh, as it relates to what you're studying with this research, I mean, would COVID only increase the need for this stuff? Because, I mean, drug supply during COVID, I imagine, would be tough to do when everyone's isolated yeah absolutely yeah so there have been a few preliminary studies done on the effects of COVID on the darknet drugs trade um in the first instance uh you know under lockdown you can't leave the house at all where are you going to get your drugs well you can get you know the postie to deliver them you know via a darknet <laughs> drug market that's that's a pretty that's a pretty good option so and we've seen some preliminary evidence to suggest that that's the case uh but the problem has been um that unlike uh, the war on drugs, which, you know, supply-side interventions typically don't work in, you know, reducing availability or increasing the prices of drugs. The disruption to global supply and shipping change that resulted from the pandemic actually did significantly, at least in the short term, have interrupted world drug supply um, in significant and quantifiable ways. So the pandemic itself actually, you know, it made it harder to to get a range of illicit drugs. Um, so, you know, while people were being sort of funneled more and more towards crypto markets, the suppliers that supply both offline and on online drug markets has been disrupted. Uh, although, you know, there will be workarounds for that. Organised crime more always figure out a way. You know, when there's the demand for illicit drugs is what it is and when there's that much money to be made, there will always be a solution in there somewhere. It's, it's yeah, I, I just... I, I guess we've spoken a lot about the drug trade and from a really business sophisticated point of view today and it's something that uh, I never really thought about it like that and, and it wasn't until you spoke about it in your presentation I was just blown away that it was this far advanced and the fact that uh, there's a need. Now, Australia is one of the biggest users of this crypto market uh, mm. for, you, for buying drugs. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. Mm. It's just so fascinating to learn about, and the work that you're doing is is really interesting. And so, mate, I'm I'm just super glad that we got the chance to sit down and have a chat today about it, and and hear all about what you're up to and the great work you're doing. So, mm. mate, is there anything um, you want to say in closing? Uh, how people can get in touch with you? Sure. Yeah. So, you, um, you know, feel free. You can look me up um, at Swinburne University of Technology, James Martin. Um, you can follow me at uh, Jamo Martin on Twitter. Uh, if you like. And yeah, thank you, Sam. It's a real uh, privilege and an honour to be invited to, to present the keynote and to, to help out with the podcast today. James, thanks for your time. Thanks, Sam.
there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.